And Heavenly Father, that is our prayer as we gather to worship today. We have made a decision. Jesus is our King, and there's no turning back. So guide us as we traverse this life, strangers and aliens on this planet, pilgrims seeking a better city. As we long, Lord, to impact our world with the truth of the gospel, to let people know that there is a Savior and their sins can be forgiven and assurance can be theirs if they trust Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, open our hearts and our minds to your word today. May we behold wondrous things from your law that will be life-transforming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. There were a couple of close friends who were sitting, having coffee, just chatting. And they began to reminisce, and one got a little nostalgic and teary-eyed as he said to his friend, you know, you've been, you've been right with me through all of life. He said, when I had the car accident, you were there to mend me. When my business failed, you were there to encourage me. When I got fired from my job, you were there to support me. And remember that time when my health failed? You were with me every step of the way. He paused for a moment and, said, and then said, come to think of it, you're bad luck. <laughs> well, I don't think that's exactly what his friend wanted to hear. But it does show that sometimes we misinterpret the presence of someone who powerfully impacts our life. I hope that's an apocryphal story, but it does sound a little bit like Gideon, who on the one hand was troubled by the absence of God, and on the other hand, troubled by the presence of God. That's interesting. We've been studying the life of Gideon, and if you wanted to have kind of a, a brief outline of his life, I would say... This is Gideon's journey of faith. And that's a good way to describe it because faith is the dominant theme. Gideon starts out cautiously. He's questioning God. He's surprised that God could use him or choose him. But then Gideon performs courageously. He fights the battle and he believes God and he goes forward in victory. But then Gideon is going to end, when we get to chapter 8, in compromise because he fails to follow the God who revealed his word, his promise to him, and the God who gave him amazing victories. I suppose if we were to outline our lives, some of us would go through those same stages. We question, we're cautious. At times we're bold and victorious and believing and filled with faith, and other times it's compromise. And disobedience. In fact, if we looked at our lives, the stages wouldn't be so neat. It would be kind of all mixed up, wouldn't it? Where we have our ups and our downs, our moments of great victory, and then we fall flat on our face. And in a sense, that's what happens in Gideon's life, too. That's why we're looking at this series, The Triumph and the Tragedy. It is so amazing when we follow God and experience his blessing, and it is so tragic when we take matters into our own hands and disobey the Lord who loves us. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 6. 
Judges chapter 6. As we look at the life of Gideon, I think it can be defined in this way. It is a battle for faith over fear. It's a battle for faith over fear, and that's a battle that you and I face every day of our lives. We're filled with phobias. We're filled with these these concerns in our soul, these questions that rise up to grab us by the throat, cut off our oxygen to hinder our forward movement for Christ, and we find ourselves struggling. Is it going to be faith or fear? And that's what's happening in the life of Gideon. I want to divide our little study this morning just into two sections. First of all, in this battle, we find that Gideon is faithful, and yet there's still a tinge of fear in his life. I like how honest the Bible is. These heroes throughout the pages of Scripture are but men and women who fail, and none of them are perfect. None of them. And in their best efforts, there are flaws. And here it is with Gideon. He's faithful, and we are faithful, but there's still that tinge of fear. Notice he starts out, verse 25, with reformation. God tells him, it's time to change God's. That same night, the night in which the Lord, the angel, or the day in which the Lord appeared to him, that same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal. Baal is the popular Canaanite god. He's the god of the storm. His chariot is the cloud. His voice, the thunder. His arrows, the lightning. And the worship of Baal was often practiced with great sexual immorality. His wife was Ashtera, the goddess of fertility. And also in worshiping this goddess, there were sexual orgies. That was the norm. The Lord said, Gideon, it's time to tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Ashtera pole beside it and then build a proper kind of altar. Not that I want you without an altar. In fact, everyone has an altar in their heart, maybe several. We are all worshipers of someone or something. The question is not do you have an altar, but is it the proper kind of altar? The kind of altar that acknowledges that God is the Lord alone. He's the everlasting, almighty God, the creator of the universe, and there is no one like him. And he needs to reign supreme without a rival. Tear down the altar to Baal, your father's altar. We don't know if Gideon had been enticed or began to move toward Baal worship. We know he was discouraged with Jehovah. We know he was confused and depressed. He knew about his dad's altar, and apparently it was a a prominent a prominent site in all of the city. Everyone knew about it. We don't know whether Gideon was beginning to move in that direction or not, but it was time to tear down the altar. You cannot cover new territory or make progress in following God until you first tear down altars that do not honor God. 
Before there is the building up, there must be the tearing down. That's the principle of reformation. Some of us just want to add things to our life. We're like hoarders. <laughs> you ever see that television show? It's appalling what people do, and they keep adding things and never get rid of anything. Some of us are spiritual hoarders. We just keep adding, you know, a little bit of this teaching and a little bit of that teaching, and we'll take on another God or two. We won't get rid of the ones we have. We'll just add more. In fact, if you go to India and preach that Jesus is God, most people will accept him and just add Jesus to their God shelf. They've got thousands, maybe millions of them. They don't mind adding another. But you've got to remove your idols. That's what needs to be done. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol may be, help me to tear it from my throne and worship only thee. You see, Jehovah is a jealous God and he will not share his glory with another. No rivals are tolerated. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was teaching a Bible study in our high school with some other athletes, and I didn't know much, but they knew less, so I was the teacher. And I can remember talking about God, and, and I said, God is a jealous God. I read from Exodus chapter 20. Our God is a jealous God. And I'll never forget Bill Poe raising his hand and saying, no, he's not. I said, well, the Bible says that God is jealous. He said, well, the Bible's wrong. God is not jealous. Well, since all of it, I, I didn't have a good response at that time. I didn't quite know what to say. And since all of us were pretty immature, none of us realized that the word jealousy is a broad enough word to have a positive and a negative definition. God is not jealous in the sense of selfish, petty jealousy where he has to control everyone and will not let anyone uh, get involved in something that, you know, doesn't involve him or where, where uh, he's, he's not that kind of, it's not that petty jealousy. It's the kind of jealousy that you ought to have for your spouse. You will not share them with another. That's a good kind of jealousy. It's the jealousy that comes from having a peculiar treasure that you deeply love, and just by the nature of the fact that God is the true God and no one is on his level, he will not tolerate a rival. And yet you and I try to replace him with our other altars all of the time. Alexander White was right when he said, be sure of this, your way forward to deliverance and spiritual prosperity and plenty lies also through that leveled grove and that flattened altar. You've got to put the gods down, and you've got to raise up Jehovah alone. The Bible tells us that's what Gideon did, verse 27. He took 10 of his servants, so apparently he wasn't super poor, and he did what the Lord told him to do. That's bold. That's gutsy. That's daring. You know why? Verse 27 says, he was afraid of his family and the men of the town. And he did it at night. Now, here's where this whole idea of apprehension comes in, this tinge of fear. He was reforming and changing, switching loyalties, and yet he didn't do it without fear. And he had a right to be afraid, afraid of his family, afraid of what the townspeople would do. 
Verse 28, in the morning when the men of the town got up, what's the first thing they do? Worship their God. So they go to the Baal altar. It must have been the center of the city, city's worship. And when they got there, it was demolished. The Asherah pole cut by, down by its side, and some of it used on another altar to sacrifice a bull. In its place, a newly built altar. And they asked each other, who did this? Hostility was in their voice, according to verse 31. They carefully investigated the matter, and they were told Gideon did it, the son of Joash. The men of the town demanded Joash, bring out your son. He's got to die. <laughs> That's ironic. God says in Deuteronomy 13, if anyone builds an altar to another god, they should be stoned to death. But the ones who should be stoned are now calling on Gideon to be stoned. Don't be surprised when this world says right is wrong and wrong is right. It's always been that way. And don't be surprised when you're condemned by the world for doing that which is right when they are the ones who are under the just condemnation of God if they reject his truth and reject his son. What a test. Do you love God more than your family, Gideon? Do you love me more than social acceptance, Gideon? This is going to make your family mad. This is going to make the townspeople angry. They may come after your hide. Do you love me more than these? That's the question, and it echoes down through time until Peter is asked that question by Jesus. Do you love me more than these fishing implements? Where is your loyalty? He passed the test. You say, yeah, but he did it by night, verse 27. He was afraid and did it by night. I don't care when he did it, he did it. And God is so pleased when we obey him, even if it's imperfect. In fact, it's always imperfect. And God didn't tell him to do it in the day. He said just to do it. Isn't it amazing how we, we can focus on the fact that he was afraid instead of focus on the fact that he did it? Almost every picture I've seen of Peter walking on the water is not Peter walking in the water to go to Jesus. It's a picture of Peter drowning. And that's human nature. We just want to put other people down to make us better. Yeah, he was afraid. It's always going to be that way. Because faith takes courage, and courage is not the absence of fear. It is the determination to go forward in spite of it. That's what courage is. In fact, you cannot have courage without danger and risk. The word doesn't exist outside of that context. And courage, and I love this quote from C.S. Lewis, courage is simply, not simply one of the virtues, it is the form of every virtue at its testing point. So courage is going forward in the face of danger. Years ago when I lived in Pennsylvania, I can remember driving about an hour and 20 minutes from my home in a westerly direction and getting out in this beautiful field and walking a rather long distance across the field. It was a gorgeous day. I think it was in July. 
It was maybe a little hot, but there was no danger. There was no courage. But the men who walked that field well over 100 years before I did, that took courage. Because I was walking the steps of Pickett's Charge on the battlefield of Gettysburg. And for those men in that line with General Lee to say, now we're going to charge across this field and try to break the Union line, do you think they were afraid? But they did it. That's courage. Or the individuals who stormed Normandy Beach, was there fear in their soul? Absolutely. But they did it. That's courage. It takes courage to follow God. It doesn't mean that there's no fear. You have to go forward anyhow. And that's exactly what Gideon is going to do. He did it by night. Yeah, but he did it. Praise God, he did it. What an amazing movement. Faith over fear. I mean, that's the question. Our battle with fear. Who's winning? All of us have phobias. Is it faith or fear? All of us struggle, but who's winning? You've got to take the promises of God to heart. You've got to make them your own by faith. You've got to believe that God is. And believe that God is good, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You've got to take him at his word and go forward in faith. Yeah, but the townspeople will get angry and my family won't like it. Go forward anyhow. I kind of wonder if Gideon didn't let his dad in on what was happening. I mean, that would have been a shock if his dad woke up in the morning and his altar to Baal was crushed. You say, well, his family was going to be against him. Well, it could have been his extended family. All I know is this. When the dad is confronted with the fact that his son Gideon must die, the dad replies, verse 31, to the hostile crowd, are you going to plead Baal's cause? It's like the dad had given up on Baal. Are you going to try to save him? Whoever fights for him will be put to death by morning. And then he says this. This is really reasonable, logical. If Baal's really a god, he can defend himself. Doesn't that, that sarcasm sound a lot like Elijah who's coming down the historical line a few years later? If, and it's the same God, Baal. That's tragic. They're still worshiping Baal. If, if Baal's a God, pray to him. God, it answers by fire. Let him be the God. And so the prophets of Baal are crying out to Baal, and Elijah is taunting them the whole time. A little louder. Maybe he's hard of hearing. Or actually, he says, a little louder. Maybe he's in the restroom. The Hebrew's more graphic. <laughs> what a taunt. Joash says, if Baal's a god, you don't need to defend him. He'll take care of himself. And so they gave Gideon a new name, Jerob Baal. And it means either the one who brings discomfort to Baal or... Let Baal deal with him. Let Baal take care of him. And that's the way it was settled. Joash's argument won the day. Faith is honored. And forward Gideon goes. Now in the narrative, we come to a second situation. And here we see Gideon, like us, often heroic, but still touched with a tinge of hesitation. We are heroic sometimes, and yet there's still this 
I'm not sure. First of all, Gideon prepares for battle in verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people joined forces, and they crossed over the Jordan, and they camped in the valley of Jezreel. We mentioned that these Midianite marauders came during harvest time. That's what it said in the early part of chapter 6. And when they filled the land with their tents and their camels and their soldiers, it looked like locusts had descended on the property. And they were so vast in number, and they left nothing. They destroyed everything. And this was their annual trek. This was the seventh time they've come, year after year. Here they come again. By the way, we're going to learn that there's 135,000 of them. Wow. And they're coming to destroy. Later, when Gideon gives a, or God gives Gideon the perspective to count and see how many people have come to his call of arms, it's a lot less. 32,000. Verse 34, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon in light of all of these people, and he blew a trumpet, the battle cry. He summoned the Abizrites to follow him, his own family, and he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms. And Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they too went up. And these are the tribes around the valley of Jezreel, the kind of the northern tribes in the Galilee, around the home of Gideon, the ones who have the most stake in the battle. And they numbered 32,000. 135,000 to 32,000, that's over four to one odds. And I'm sure that shook Gideon up. The numbers were not in his favor. The resources not in his favor. The history was not in his favor. All he had was God. And the Spirit of God came upon Gideon. He had the promise of God. He had the presence of God. He had strength within him, deposited by God. And now he has the Spirit of God. In fact, the Scripture says, verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. It literally says Gideon was, was clothed with the Spirit. He was clothed with the Spirit. That's God saying, I got you covered with unusual power. Recently, we had some torrential rains in our area. Those of you watching on the Internet maybe had some of those same rains, and probably to your horror, a few of you went to your basement, and there was water, right? And so you call your insurance agent and say, am I covered? And your agent says, I've got you covered. Maybe he didn't say that, but let's just pretend. <laughs> what does that mean? You're protected. I've got you covered. I'll handle this. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying to Gideon. I am clothing you with my spirit. Yeah, but I'm a weak person, and I'm the least in my family, and I'm from a weak tribe. I've got it covered, God says. Faith must believe that God is and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Gideon has a new altar in his life and a new name and now new power. If you're a child of God, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. You've got a new name. And there's a new altar where you worship 
And you have the power of the Holy Spirit residing in you. Wow, that's amazing. I'm a creature of God because I'm made in God's image. I'm a child of God because I'm redeemed by his son. And I'm a temple of God because I'm indwelt by his spirit. That's amazing power, isn't it? And as we said uh, a couple weeks before, God has given us this power. It's a power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in us. We're prepared for battle. We can do all that God calls us to do. I love this story of the uh, British pastors who were considering calling D.L. Moody to come over to England and Scotland and, and do some evangelistic crusades. The American evangelist was well known, and while they were contemplating the invitation, one English pastor asked this question. Why must it be Moody? Does he have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? To which one of the other men said, no, but it appears that the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Moody. That's what we need. Our churches are not going to change our society by legislation, and I'm not against good laws. I'm just saying that's not our hope. It's not going to be our numbers, and it's not going to be our techniques, and it's not going to be our clever way of doing things. It is going to be by might and by my spirit, saith the Lord. If we are not endued from, with power from on high, forget about impacting this culture. But we've got resources, we've got money, that 32,000 in, in the face of 135,000. Does God have a monopoly on us? 1 John chapter 4 says, You've overcome because greater is he who is in you than he who is. Do you believe that? Then why are we fretting? But persecution may come. We've been called to that. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Maybe revival will hit. But it's not going to come with us cowering in the corner. We must be filled with the Spirit and speak the truth and love people. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Our battle is not with the people of the world. Our battle is the one with the God of this world. And we don't win our battles by cursing them. Bless those who persecute you. When the Spirit has got control of us, when we're filled with the Spirit, the most dominant fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. Well, Gideon prepares for battle, and he's got the power of the Spirit, even though the numbers don't look good. He is clothed with God. And then in verse 36, he says, you know, but wait a minute, I still need more confirmation. This is the famous Gideon's fleece, beginning in verse 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you've promised, look, I will... Place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all around the ground is dry, then I will know you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. 
Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out, a do, out, of, uh, out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, how about a mulligan? Let's do this over. I'm not quite sure. Don't be angry with me, which shows Gideon knew what he was doing was, was not really not good. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test. Test of what? Test of God? His promise? You see, before, when he asked for a sign, the question was, is it you? Now the question is, is your word true? Those are two different things. I certainly give him a pass the first time, but I don't think this fleece idea is a good idea. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry, which is much harder because wool would normally soak up the, the moisture. And let the ground around be covered with dew. And that night God did it. You say, well, God did it. God often condescends to our weakness. But it does not, it does not declare his approval. If the real question is, and by the way, Gideon indicts himself twice. Verse 36 if you will save as you have promised. If your promise is true, verse 37, if you will do what you said, this sounds a lot more like Zechariah when the angel said, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah says, that couldn't happen. A fleece is a tangible sign where we seek confirmation of God's guidance in a setting that we can try. Oswald Sanders says this isn't a mark of spiritual maturity. And Warren Worsby says this is not the biblical method to discern the will of God. It's too much of our own making, this idea of a fleece. Now, will God sometimes give us confirmation? Absolutely. In fact, I, I find this really almost humorous. Gideon asks for a sign in chapter 6, and God gives him one when the angel with the staff touches the meal and fire flares from the rack. He asks for a sign with the fleece, and God gives it to him. In chapter 7, just before he goes to battle, given Gideon doesn't even ask for a sign. God says, I'll just give you one. And he says, when you go down, you'll hear the armies talking about how you're going to defeat them. Then you'll know that I'm with you. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll just give it to you. Yeah, God often gives us encouragement. But we're supposed to walk by faith, not by sight. It doesn't mean that God can't give confirmation, but we're supposed to trust his word. You see, the problem with this fleece deal is that we often set it up so we're the winners. It's too contrived. I've done it myself, and when it doesn't turn out the way I want it, I'll say, what about two out of three? Right? Gideon has a second time where he says, don't be mad with me. I, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but... I heard of a person who uh, had three job opportunities and he was trying to determine which one to take. And so he was sitting in his office looking out the window and he says, one was to be a missionary and the other two were something else. But he said, okay, if a red rambler is the first car that comes by, I'll go to Africa. <laughs> which is kind of safe, you know. And a blue rambler went by. A rambler is pretty rare. I think God has a sense of humor. It says, what are you going to do with that one? 
I don't know. <laughs> God loves to give us guidance, though. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm just saying let's be careful about manipulating it. I hate when people come to me and say, God told me to do this. Are you sure? Because you're a human being, and you're filled with weakness, and you might get it wrong. I would much rather you say, I think God wants me to do this. That shows a little more humility. Does God guide us? Absolutely. In fact, let me give you some principles for seeking the guidance of God that I think are better than a fleece. Finding God's guidance starts out, first of all, with a study of the Word of God. This Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This book is complete. It's not deficient. It is sufficient. And it gives us such wonderful light that if you study this book and think about it and pray over it, much of the guidance will be given. Secondly, pray for wisdom. That's James chapter 1. If you lack wisdom, ask. Wisdom is understanding the word and knowing how to apply it. It's more than just knowledge. Knowledge is facts. Wisdom is knowing how to make that uh, important application to your situation. Thirdly, consult godly counselors. That's Proverbs 11. In the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Now, be careful here, because in a multitude of counselors, you'll have different opinions. Has that ever happened to you? I've got five godly counselors and six different opinions. Now what do I do? Well, remember that godly counselors, they're helpful. The Bible says they're safety, but remember they're humans. It's not infallible like the Word is. Fourthly, pray for God's control. I often pray like this, Lord, don't let me make the wrong decision. And I base that on the book of Acts where the Spirit of God said to Paul's evangelistic team, don't go there. And they tried to go here, don't go there. Doors are opened and doors close. You know the problem I have with doors? I don't know whether I'm supposed to open it or find another one. I mean, that, I don't know whether this is an obstacle I'm to overcome or a closed door that I'm to avoid. So I have to keep praying for wisdom. But I pray that God will not let me make the wrong choice. And then we need to let the Spirit guide. The Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to us. Lead me not into temptation. It's the Spirit of God who often speaks to my conscience and lets me know when I'm out of bounds and convicts me. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Romans 8, 16 says the Spirit speaks with our spirit to confirm, yes, we're children of God. This is a subjective area, but the Spirit of God is working to give guidance and direction. Some of the old saints called it the prompting of the Spirit. I talked on the phone to the author, Jerry Bridges, who has written some excellent things, and in his autobiography, he made a statement that about Eight to ten times in his life, he heard an inaudible voice of God. He said, now, don't get me wrong. It's only happened eight to ten times in 65 years of following Christ. But he said, sometimes it's as though the Spirit is speaking to you. And this shouldn't become the way we're always led. I'm just going to be, you know, 
the peace of God. I've got peace. I'll never forget when the man came into my office and said, I prayed about this and I've got peace. I'm going to divorce my wife and marry my secretary. And I said, whatever peace you have is not from God. You could have a seared conscience. That's why when you get into the subjective area, you've really got to be careful. But the Spirit is to guide and direct our steps, convicting our soul, giving us peace. And then the final thing, this may shock you, do whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, based on these other things. Don't take the last one first. Augustine used to put it this way, love God with all your heart and do whatever you want. And the legalists go, oh no, you can't tell people that. And Augustine's reasoning was, if you love God with all of your heart, then whatever you want to do is going to be pleasing in his sight. The point is, don't get so entrapped with these decisions. You know, God has a will for my life. Do I put on the right sock first or the left sock? Let me pray about it. There are people paralyzed with decision-making almost to that extent. And it gets ridiculous. Know the word be dependent upon the Lord in prayer. Seek the wisdom of others. And then make a good choice. And if you're praying, God, keep me from making the wrong one, doors will open and doors will close. A man plans his way, but God directs his steps. And God will give you guidance. What he doesn't want you to be is paralyzed as you try to find out what in the world you're supposed to do. I know some decisions are harder than others. Gideon waited for two days for the fleece to get dry and the fleece to get wet. Finally, Gideon is going to go forward. Here's the great thing about Gideon. Look at chapter 11, the book of Hebrews, for a moment. The great thing about Gideon is, maybe this isn't great, but it's helpful. Gideon's much like us. But the great thing about Gideon is that God views him through grace. Sins forgiven. Aren't you glad that God views you by grace? You want to know who I am? You could probably list a whole bunch of sins and failures first, but I'm glad the Lord sees me in Christ and says, this is my child, perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ. I'm glad for that view of grace. Gideon is included in Hebrews 11, this chapter of the heroes of faith. That's interesting. Look at verse 32. After talking about what faith is, defining it, and talking about men and women who are heroes, he says, well, how much more do I need to say? It'd take too long to recount the stories of Gideon. Gideon's mentioned first. Now, had you been there when this was spoken? Had I been there? We might have raised our hand and said, oh, oh wait a minute. Gideon was afraid. He tore down the altar by night. Gideon was afraid he had to put forward a fleece. Gideon was afraid. Yeah, but he conquered by faith. Time fails me to tell the stories of faith in the life of Gideon and Barak and Samson. And Samson? Yeah, Samson. <laughs> and Jephthah and David. And David? Yeah, David. You see, we know all their failures. And God says, these are heroes of faith. Doesn't always mean they ended well. Didn't mean everything they did was right. He says, verse 33, these people all trusted God and as a result won battles and conquered kingdoms. That's Gideon. 
Verse 34, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. That's Gideon. And these people were all commended for their faith. That's Gideon. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Let's pray. Lord, we are so much like Gideon in his weakness, in his faltering. And we praise you for the grace that made him a mighty warrior. Lord, help us to understand that our own Christian life is going to be a life of ups and downs, of forward and backward, almost at the same time. Thank you, Lord, that while we may be tinged with fear, we can still be heroes of faith. While we move forward with apprehension, we can still be courageous as we obediently walk with you. Lord, I pray that you will help our faith to be so riveted in you, and it will be not a faith just in propositions, but in a person that our relationship with you would be real and living and genuine, that our walk with you will not just be theoretical, but it will be actual, that we will commune with you, that we will hear your voice speaking to us from your word and saying, this is the way, walk in it. And we will have that encouragement from the Holy Spirit and his protection and guidance all the way. Oh, Lord, we are a needy people. Send your fire upon us today that the world may know that you are the living God. In Jesus' name, amen.